Well, thanks, Annette, for that reading. If you guys can keep that open, that would be very helpful. That's the part of the Bible we're obviously referring to this morning. So great to have that open in front of you. How about I pray and ask God's help for us uh, this morning? Heavenly Father, thank you for this living letter. We thank you, Lord, that as we've praised you, as we've turned our hearts to you in prayer, we thank you, Father, that you're the God who is there. And we ask that now, by your Holy Spirit, you'd take this word and that you would challenge us and change us and cause us to be made more like your son, Jesus. But we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, I want to start with a question. Who should we honour? Who should we honour? It's a pretty interesting question. I think as Australians, we struggle with this word, who should we honour? So I'll give you some options, and you can give me a cheer or a boo. That's pretty dangerous, isn't it? So uh, I'm, I'm sure you're aware uh, that Australia is a constitutional monarchy. So we should honour our Queen. That's the sort of spirit. That's great. Okay. And uh, we, we have an elected parliament, so we should honour our politicians. <laughs> there aren't too many times when you can say the Queen got more of a... <laughs> uh, does anyone know who that is? It's Gladys. Okay, it's our, our state premier. Wonderful. And if you can spell a second name, there's a prize at morning tea. So that would be, um, that'd be excellent. Uh, so our queen, our politicians, uh, our leaders. That's a chuckle even, my goodness. I'll let Steve Smith know, the Australian cricket captain, uh, that he's not as highly esteemed as the politicians of the country. And then he'll really feel down on himself, no doubt. It's really interesting. I think as we come to think of this word honour, we struggle as Australians. Uh, we, we, we like to believe in this sort of flat society with no hierarchy. And so we'd feel if you were to honour somebody, you'd actually be lifting them up higher than you. And there's something un-Australian about that. Is that, that kind of right? So we don't want to do any honouring because it might go to their heads and it might ruin everything. So in the passage we have here today... Paul points us to people to honour. And it's a little bit surprising. It's not the leaders. Paul points us to servants. Paul points us to servants. And he wants to show us that we should honour servants around us. I want to tell you about one of them. Uh, This is a tennis ball. And you guys may have heard... Let um, me tell this story before, but this is a tennis ball, and this is a very important part of my coming to uh, know and love Jesus. I, I was brought up in a house that, that knew Jesus, uh, at least that, that we prayed twice a day. We, we said our, our grace and our Lord's Prayer when we went to bed. But I went to Sunday school every week, and at Sunday school, uh, there was a man called Rolf. And Rolf was able to throw the tennis ball a long way. And as a young boy in primary school, that was seriously impressive. And so for me, as I went to Sunday school, here was Rolf. He could throw tennis balls a long way. He had my absolute attention. And what Rolf told me, here's a picture of Rolf, what Rolf told me was that I should read my Bible every single day. Now, there could have been all sorts of good reasons to do that. I did it because Rolf could throw tennis balls a long way. And so that's how I started. Now, it happened at the same time that Rolf was teaching us biblical theology in year five in primary school. (laughs) He taught us a whole lot of things about the covenant of God and all sorts of things. And together with me reading the Bible every day, God was laying a foundation for the rest of my life. 
He set me on a path. Now, Rolf himself was on a path. He ended up going to Cambodia and served for 20 years there in the Bible college teaching Cambodians about Jesus. I bumped into Rolf after a, uh, a, um, a conference in the city a while ago. And I, I saw him and I ran up to him and I said, mate, I, I just want to say thank you so much. I know you were just doing what you loved, but you set me on a course that I'm still on today. I want to say thank you for serving me when I was little. Now, do you guys have a Rolf? Not, not an actual Rolf, because your, your person might be called something else. Do you have someone like that who's made a huge impact on your life because they are a servant of Jesus to you? Do you have someone like that? I think they're the sort of people that Paul is going to tell us about today. So we're going to see the two men in the passage here that Paul points to. But first, a little background, a little reminder of the situation as to why we meet these two men in the particular way that we do. The first thing to remember is that the author of the book, uh, Paul, is in prison. Now, you've been doing this Philippian series with us. You're aware of this. He's in prison. What you may not know is that prison in these days was user pays. Did you know that? What that, what that meant was, you didn't get put in jail and they give you three square meals a day. You get put in jail and if you don't have any friends or any people to help you out, you'll go hungry and be without clothing and support. So if your friends know that you're in jail, they would actually have to provide support for you. The government wasn't doing it. That's a little bit different, isn't it? And if we didn't know that, we might not know why there's such a love between the Philippians and Paul. We'll see that a little bit later in the letter. Paul is in prison. Prison is user pays, and Paul is there for an indefinite period. He's, he's appealed to Caesar, and he's ended up in jail in Rome, and he's waiting on his case to be heard. I don't know if you've ever been involved in the legal system. Anyone? It runs on rails, very tight schedule, nothing ever gets delayed. That's, that's, the, that's the tips for you. Does that sound right? It's terrible. Things get cancelled and waylaid and appealed and paperwork gets lost, or whatever it is. <laughs> There's a, a profound sense when it comes to the timeline and the law that you are utterly powerless. It'll eventually happen. Justice will be done or not done. But it's not in your drive. You, you can't make it happen. And so there's Paul in jail, needing help and waiting on the good pleasure of the Roman government of the time. One of the other things that's important to note, and I know you won't have remembered this, but this was written a long time ago. Who would have thought? We think somewhere around 62 AD. Now, when we think that someone's far away from us and they need help, what would we do? Well, we'd FedEx them some assistance, wouldn't we? 2,000 years ago. Revelation this morning, no FedEx. Maybe we want to get them some money so we could electronic transfer it to them. Oh, no, that, that won't work either. Maybe we could use Western Union. We put the money in this side, and there's a physical branch at the other end where your relative can come and withdraw it, yeah? Didn't exist. I know, I know. Look, we'll just to encourage Paul, we'll just hit him up on Skype, and we'll have a chat with him. Who would have known? Wasn't there. I know what we'll do. Look, we'll just duck over to Rome for the weekend, give them a little bit of a pep talk, and then we'll be back here in time for... 
There were no airlines, obviously, either. All right, Revelation, not, not, not so insightful. But here's the thing. We often think about distance today. We're just wired to think about distance as being almost irrelevant. In the ancient world, it was a huge deal. And they're over a 1,000 kilometers away from where Paul is. And so to have someone that you love in jail far away was not an easy thing to, man- to, to manage when you wanted to give them assistance. So all those things are different, but love and lasting relationships are still the same. They're the same as they were then, as they are today. The problem was, in that time, if you had all that love and that concern and commitment, everything had to be done in person. Everything had to be done in person. The messaging, the money, the visiting, all of that had to happen in person. So let's meet some of those people. If you've got the Bible there, please uh, open it up. Uh, we're in, uh, in chapter 2, and we're going to meet a man called Timothy. Now, wonderfully, Timothy doesn't just appear in this letter to the Philippians. I'm sure you're familiar that it's often Paul and Timothy who are writing letters together. I, th- I think that means that Timothy's hanging out with Paul while he writes the letters, but he's so inclusive all the time, Paul goes out of his way quite often to say, Timothy here is with me. So let me give you a little brief bio. What do we know about Timothy. Well, Timothy apparently was born about 17 AD in Lystra in modern Turkey. How do we know he's born in 17 AD? Basically, no no one has a birth certificate from Timothy, you'll be surprised to know. But what we do know is something about his parenting, and when I tell you where he died, I'll tell you how we kind of work it out. Uh, Timothy's parents are interesting. His father is a Greek and his mother is a Jew. That's very unusual. That would have been a very unusual partnership because, in general, Jews stick to the Jews, and I'm sure the Greeks stick to the Greeks. So to have a Greek and a Jewish uh, set of parents was extremely unusual. We're also told wonderfully in 2 Timothy, the second letter that Paul writes to Timothy, that he has a grandmother and a mother whose names are given to us, Eunice and Lois. I love it. They're in the Bible. It says because he says to Timothy that you have known the Holy Scriptures from your infancy. How had Timothy known the Holy Scriptures from infancy? Well, because his mother and his grandmother had taught him. I think that's an incredible legacy in its own right, isn't it? I would argue that they're Timothy's Rolfs, if you get my very twisted analogy at this point. Okay? They're the people who went out of their way to invest in him. And I would argue that Timothy is only able to be of such assistance to Paul because of the extraordinary work and love and care of his grandmother and his mother. That's pretty encouraging. So there he is uh, in Lystra. In about AD 49, a bloke called Paul comes through the town of Lystra. And he meets this young man called Timothy. And he says, Timothy, have I got a job for you? Come join me on the journey of taking the good news of Jesus out into the known world. And I I don't know if it was a kind of fisherman and Jesus kind of moment, but it seems that Timothy made a decision to say, see mum and dad, see your granny, I'm off. I'm joining this man on God's mission for his world. That's a pretty radical commitment. And so he travels around with Paul pretty much for the rest of Paul's life. Timothy will be somewhere either going to or from Paul or by his side. 
And so we have him at Paul's side all the way through until we're told after, out, from outside the Bible, that, uh, that uh, Timothy was actually made the Bishop of Ephesus and he died in 97 AD. Because we know when he died and we know how old he was, we're able to work out when he was born. So that's the, that's the magic trick there. So, but Timothy ends up being a bishop in a church that he founds with Paul. It's, it's, a, it's an amazing story of a life well lived. And there's no one, I think, that Paul trusts more uh, than Timothy. So that's a little bit of background on Timothy. Let's see uh, what he has to say here about him. Now, as, as we do that, does anyone here play chess? Quick shove of hands. Okay, well, I'm going to get the five of you together and you're going to have a brilliant time. The rest of you apparently don't do it. But do you know how it's played? Is the reason that we don't play it because you have to use your brain, is that right? I'd much prefer to play Uno or Snap, is that right? That's where we're up to, church. Good, great, okay. The, the reason is you, you can't, you, you, well, you can play it where you just move the pieces, right? But the idea is there's planning at the heart of playing chess, okay? You've got to think, as they say, Four or five moves ahead. Not just what you're doing now, but what will they do? What will I do? I'm trying to get to here. So you're planning out. Now, some of you are wired up as planning people. Are there any planning people in the room today? Excellent. Are you married to non-planning people? I see some heads nodding. Okay, all right. If you're a planning person, you like to lock in the plans. You like to think ahead. Conversely, if you're a non-planning person, you like to just roll with it. Yeah, whatever. We'll, we'll, We'll figure it out as we go along. Drives the planning people insane, I'm sure. I can see some little nudges happening here. That's great. Okay, all right. Uh, Here's the thing. I I want to note, incidentally, just before we get to Timothy, I want to note something incidentally about the way Paul talks about his planning. Have a look with me at Philippians 2, uh, verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. Remember, how's Paul going to find out about the people in Philippi, well, he needs to send an envoy back to find the news and then to bring the news back. So imagine being Timothy, right? It's a massive job. But I want you to see what he says. It's just incidental. He says, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you. And you think, what? Why does he say that? Is that just some sort of pious thing to say? I hope in the Lord to send him to you. Some really helpful advice in James chapter 4, verses 13 to 16. Have a listen to this. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city. Spend a year there. Carry on business and make money. Why, you do not know, even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. Now, that's helpful, isn't it? Why does Paul say, I hope in the Lord to do this? Well, I'm sure he had a plan. It's not give up your plans, but it's submit your plans to the Lord. Do you see the helpfulness of this? Do not say, I'm going to, because who's that depending on? What we'll say is, I hope in the Lord, because we're showing our dependence on Jesus. I think there's a practical tip there. So I want to ask you, how are you going in planning with genuine humility? How are you going in planning with genuine humility? Paul talks about Timothy in this way, in verses 20 and 21. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, 
not to those of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I'm sure there were other Christian brothers and sisters in Rome. There were other people around. And Paul isn't really talking them down, but he is lifting up something about Timothy, something that makes him unique. See, there are other Christians in Rome, but there weren't other Christians in Rome who were as passionately committed to the Philippians as Timothy was. It says he shows genuine concern for your welfare. And I want you to know, you remember, don't you? Where did Timothy come from? The answer was Lystra. Is it anywhere near Philippi? It's not at all, is it? It's miles away. And so here we have a man who's in Rome, away from Philippi, away from his hometown. But Paul says, I have no one else like him who genuinely loves you. And so I was thinking about this, and it's a reflection for us this morning. Who do you genuinely care about here? See, Timothy was a thousand kilometers away from the Philippians. He'd founded the church, but then had to leave with Paul. But his heart, even even a thousand kilometers away, his heart was still back in Philippi because he loved those people. Now, we're here in our gathering this morning. We're sitting a chair or two away, depending on how socially awkward we feel this morning. We, we, we might be sitting next to someone. We might not even know their name. You may have looked the other way when we were doing the welcoming time. I think it's striking that Timothy was able to have genuine concern for people who were a thousand kilometers away because he had relationship with them in Jesus. We're sitting in the same building this morning and I want to ask you, who do you have genuine concern for here? And if we're unknown here, can I encourage you? I'm delighted you're with us. We'd love to get to know you. We'd love to show you care and concern. I'd love for this to be a place where there is genuine concern for one another. Now, my rib has been a concern recently. <laughs> I, 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 I coughed too much and I strained my side and uh, it was a great tragedy in my household because I was off my bike for about five weeks. These are very important things. Things you don't know, about. I, you don't know I, I play basketball. You may or may not know I ride my bike quite a lot. Anyway, I got back on my bike the other day. Thank you for sharing. I feel the genuine concern. It's good. It's working well. Uh, when I go for a ride, I have to log it on my computer. Uh, there's, a, uh, there's a computer program called Strava. Uh, it connects to my little GPS thing, and it plots out where I ride. And when I put it on my computer, it goes up into the cloud, and then people all over who are following me notice that I've gone on my ride, and I get a little thumbs up from them, and it just validates my whole humanity. It's just, it's just absolutely fantastic. Uh, what they say is, among cyclists, what they say is, if it's not on Strava, it didn't happen. You didn't have a ride. So what people do is they come home and their computer's broken down, and they're like, no! Genuine distress. Post on other social media that you had a distressing incident where you couldn't post about your ride. You're getting how important this is? All right. The, the, the idea here is proof. Did you really do it? Paul has some proof about Timothy. Have a listen to these verses, uh, 22 to 24. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope therefore to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. <coughs> Paul's saying something profoundly beautiful about Timothy. Did you hear the way he relates to him? 
As a father with a son, he says, Timothy has proved himself. He has served with me in the work of the gospel. There's something about this partnership so genuine is the commitment of Timothy to the good news that as Paul has served, as he's traveled the world, as he's preached Jesus, there's been someone by his side the whole time and it's Timothy. And he says, Timothy has proved his faithfulness in being alongside, uh, alongside Paul. It's an absolutely beautiful picture of intimacy, these two men working together, and commitment. And so I, I love that he's able to call him his son. Now, I don't know what our relationships might become. As you heard uh, in the prayers, uh, Nelson prayed beautifully that we're a five-and-a-half-year-old church. None of us, well, some of you have known outside of this church, each other for more than five-and-a-half years. Now, do I expect that there'll be fathers and sons Spiritual fathers and sons in this place? Not quite yet. Do I think that it's a possible place that we could get to? Gee, I hope so. Gee, I hope so. And so I want to put before you this morning, could church, is church, can it become a family business in the sense that I'm so committed to you, to your upbringing, to your growth in the Lord, or you are so committed to the upbringing and growth of someone else in the Lord? that these bonds of friendship and fellowship might rightly be called family. It's certainly something to aspire to, isn't it? It's something to aspire to. So we talk about real relationships, relationships of genuine concern and family commitment. And uh, it's really interesting. Uh, I often get uh, people come to me. This shouldn't stop anyone, by the way. But people come to me and say, can you write me a reference letter? I'm applying for a job or I'm, I'm whatever. Can you write me a reference letter? Now, some of those are easier to write than others, aren't they? Anyone been in this position before? Why don't you write the reference letter and give it to me and I'll... No, it's not quite that bad. But, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. When it comes to having a reference letter from me, I'd love to know you and I'd love to know something about you and part of that will be that we've served alongside each other, that I can vouch for you And so on the assumption that at some point I'll have to write you a reference letter, I'm encouraging you, come and serve. Come and get to be known alongside and realise that that starts now. If you start now, we'll have something to talk about when it comes time for the reference letter. So come and pitch in and join me in the work of Jesus. Well, let's meet the second man uh, here. His name is Epaphroditus. And uh, I think I've joked at some point so far, but uh, kids need to be called Epaphroditus, obviously. It's not going to be the first word that we're going to come for. Uh, he had a very ugly portrait, which is the only one I could find, um, his iconography. So there you go. That's, uh, that's Epaphroditus. Uh, Epaphroditus was a native to Philippi. Uh, he had, uh, was named after uh, arguably uh, the, the goddess Aphrodite, Epaphroditus. So he was lovely, good. That was kind of what his name meant. Uh, he was heading from Philippi to Rome with the help that the Philippians were showing to Rome in Paul. So they said, we need to send some stuff. We need a bod to do it. Who's going to do it? Epaphroditus is going to do it. So crack on, mate. It's your job. Uh, along the way, he's going along the Ignatian way. There are all sorts of dangers. The ancient literature says that on these roads, you're in danger from bears, you're in danger from bandits, and you're in danger from sickness. Well, somewhere along the way, for our friend, he got sick. And not just a little bit unwell, but actually it says almost to the point of death. 
there, there is yet, though, something very special about Epaphroditus. And I want you to hear how Paul describes this incredible bond that he has with this man from Ephesus. Have a look at me at verse, uh, verse 25. Paul says, But I think it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. Talk about a reference letter. Now, brothers and sisters, we're reading this 2,000 years later, aren't we? What do I know about Epaphroditus? I've never met him. But Paul wrote something about this man that has echoed through to us here in Oran Park in Australia 2,000 years later. What are the words that he uses to describe him? Well, he calls him a brother. Now, I have a brother and I love him to bits. For me to call somebody else a brother is a high honour. He's a brother. He's a co-worker and he's a fellow soldier. What, what do those words mean for us? Well, it means for Paul, I think, that he, is, has, he shares a common love. He's my brother. He shares a common love with Epaphroditus. When he says he's a co-worker, he says, this man is laboring on the same job I'm doing. They're one in purpose. And when he says he's a fellow soldier, it's because he recognizes that there's a spiritual battle going on and this man has his back. It's a beautiful picture of commitment. I want to ask us this morning, do we know a fellowship like this? Now, I know, I, I'm kind of conscious, it's very blokey language, isn't it, ladies? I, I said to the girls uh, in our life group, I said, so what's the girl equivalent? So if I say if someone's a good man or they're a brother, like, that's high esteem. And I'm like, what's the girl equivalent? What's the word that you use for that? And the girl said, oh, we kind of say there's a lot, a lot of things. I said, oh, that's typical. Okay, guys have one word. Ladies have a description. Okay, that's, that's fine. I understand. But here's the thing, ladies. I don't want you to feel excluded from this. I want you to get the connection here. I know you live this. I know that you have sisters, okay? I know that you know what it is to stand with one another, to weep with one another, and I guess I want to feel this encouragement to know a fellowship like this, where these words naturally fall off our tongues about our relationships with one another. Now, remember here, I said it was 2,000 years ago, everything in the ancient world happens slowly. No electricity, no cars, no planes. Everything happens at the speed of horse. That's the fastest thing you've got. Or foot. And so I want you to see how slow it is. He doesn't just Skype in. Have a look at verses 26 to 28. And and knowing that it's slow will explain why this anxiety exists. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, not only on him, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I'm all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. See, what had happened was, I assume on the way, he'd got sick and maybe he got sick at an inn somewhere and he decided heroically to keep going to Rome because he had the bag of money and resources that needed to get to Paul. But he was so sick, he almost died. I, I'm, I'm speculating here, but I imagine there was someone at the, at the inn who saw how unwell he was and was heading this direction back to Philippi. 
And so he heads back to Philippi. This guy heads back to Philippi. He was going that way anyway and takes a message. Hey, church, did you know I bumped into Epaphroditus on the way? He's terribly ill. Epaphroditus keeps going this way, right, to Rome, almost on the point of death. The church in Philippi learns that he's about to die and they have no extra word. That's it. That's where they're up to. And so he's distressed that they're distressed. Isn't that beautiful? He's distressed that they're distressed. And yet, he didn't die. Verse 27 tells us, uh, indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. It was a really interesting speculation. I was reading in one of my books, commentaries, that, that helps me, and they said, do you know what? In the ancient world, when you got so sick that you almost died, guess what generally happened? You died. Okay, that's good. You, you've got it. So sick that you almost died without medicine basically means other things being equal, you'll die. So the, the, the guy who I was reading was speculating that if he was so sick he almost died, but it says that God was merciful on him. The, the, the guy who I was reading was, was speculating perhaps God was merciful enough to save him miraculously. So the mercy that he showed may have been a miracle. Now, that is complete speculation, but it's interesting because the downward trajectory of health, okay, would have been very steep. Paul, we know, had a ministry of healing, and so it may be that the mercy that was shown to him was actually a miracle of healing. Don't know that? That's total speculation. But what I do want you to see is something far more garden variety, but no less extraordinary. Have you heard Paul use the word joy in this letter so far? The answer is, great work, good, you're paying attention, very good. I want you to see that Paul says that he is sorrowful. God had mercy on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Here's the thing. Paul is constantly talking about joy in the letter to the Philippians. And yet he speaks of being spared a sorrow on top of sorrow. There must be sorrow in Paul's life. It is not incompatible, therefore, in the Christian walk, as Paul models it to us, to be sorrowful and yet rejoicing. It means that rejoicing must be something other than happiness. It's in the Lord. And so we may know sorrow, and yet we may be sustained by joy in the Lord. Can I encourage you today, if you know sorrow, the answer isn't that God will magically make you happy but he may in his mercy provide you with joy in the midst of your sorrow. That's a great truth, isn't it? And then we get to the matter of honour. About the only place I can think that as Australians we offer honour is Anzac Day, really. I think it's the only thing we genuinely show honour for. I read a report recently that someone was arrested at an Anzac Day parade when they were doing the minute science for calling out words, stop wars and stuff like that. He was actually arrested. Now that will only happen in Australia because this is our highest pinnacle of honour. Paul tells us that we need to direct honour in a particular way. Have a look at verses 29 to 30. So then welcome him in the Lord. Welcome Epaphroditus. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honour people like him because who almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Isn't this beautiful? He says, this man pushed on almost to the 
almost to the end of his life, he pushed on to bring your assistance to me. And he says, honour him. And I wonder if you've thought, why did they need to honour him? Didn't, didn't we naturally think that he's awesome? I, I think it's possible. As he writes the letter, where is Paul? He's in jail. And yet, Epaphroditus was sent from Philippi to jail to be with Paul and to be the face of the Philippians fallen. Paul is now sending him home while he's still in jail. I think it's possible for Epaphroditus to have returned home with people thinking that he failed. Do you see this possibility? Paul's still in jail. You're our man helping Paul. If you're back home and he's still in jail, you've let us down. Do you see that possibility? And so Paul writes and says, you need to honour him. You need to honour him. And so I think it explains his return is not in failure, but because of illness. So I think Paul is doing something beautiful here. He ensures his honour, not shame. Do you see this? Honour people like him because of his commitment to Jesus, even if he apparently failed in some sense. He didn't. He honoured Jesus, and I want you to honour him. If we want to be like Timothy, we'll show great care. We'll have a great track record, and we'll bear great responsibility. If we want to be like Epaphroditus, we'll know incredible love. We'll experience the depth of fellowship. We will be daring for Jesus, and we may even know failure in the process. What about you? What kind of person do you want to be in the midst of our church? What kind of person do you want to be? Do you aspire to be? I think there are people that we can honour. Do you know we have missionaries overseas we support, encourage, through CMS called Howard and Michelle. I'd love us to do a great job of supporting our missionaries. I want to ask you, will you take risks to follow Jesus? For, for Epaphroditus, it was almost to death. Will we take rest? Will we be adventurous as followers of Jesus? And will we honour our heroes? Those people who are your Rolfs, could you drop them a line this week? Say, gee, I want to say thank you. Maybe they've passed on to glory, in which case, give thanks to God for them. As I talk about honouring people, I couldn't let this story go, so bear with me. One, one more story. Here's a guy. He was born in Tasmania in 1911. He was born in Tasmania in 1911, a long time ago. Okay? He was ordained in Sydney in 1935. You're like, right, okay, so he's an old Anglican minister. Why does this particularly matter? Well, he became the Archbishop of Sydney from 1966 to 1982. Before that, he was the principal of Moore College. Uh, throughout all of his life, the, the, the biography that I briefly read, read of him but basically said that he was a man who's always committed to the Word of God, but was incredibly pastoral, visiting people, encouraging, following them up. A man who loved Jesus, loved his Word, and served the people. A, a real servant-hearted person who stood true for Jesus in the midst of our city. His name was Marcus Lone. And uh, you might be surprised to know, but we've actually got something right here today which is designed to honour him. There's a sign just out here. You can see it out the side there. The street here is called Marcus Lone Way. And you, you might have thought, what team did Marcus Lone race for? 
I'm told he was a Ford fan, by the way, but, uh, <laughs> but here's the thing. Despite the, the fact that all the roads around here are named after race car drivers, this one here, just here, is named Marcus Lone Way. To honour a man who poured himself out in the name of Jesus in our city. Brothers and sisters, you might not end up with a street sign. But I pray that we would know how to honour you as you seek to serve Jesus. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the servants who went before us. For those who've been a huge influence on us. Father, I pray while we give thanks for their service, that you might help us to look and see who we can encourage to keep running the race. Father, would you build bridges of fellowship and friendship in the life of our church? Would you help us to have genuine concern for one another? Build our church this way, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.